I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Preparing for a conscious death. And when I, when I look at that phrase, the first thing that pops out to me is what does it mean to be conscious? Conscious death, I mean, certainly conscious living is what prepares one for conscious dying. So I decided I'd look up conscious in the dictionary. And the first meaning is just being aware, being aware of your surroundings. Somebody's conscious, they're not unconscious. And I think we often mistake conscious for just being mindful. I'm conscious of what's happening now. Then a deeper question is, what is happening now? Is being aware of me looking at a computer screen and people out there are moving around or I can feel my, my butt on the chair here. Uh, words are coming out of my mouth. And I'm, I'm conscious of all that. But is that really all that's going on? In fact, is that the most fundamental thing that's going on? Is there something else to be conscious of that takes a more subtle awareness, a more subtle heart, a deeper heart, that allows the, the direct experience of God or pure consciousness moment to moment? And of course, the answer to that is yes. In preparing for a conscious death, we 
create a conscious life. And yet I think it's so easy to think, well, all I'm really capable of in my busy life is being a little more conscious, bringing awareness to driving in traffic or cooking vegetables or uh, fighting with my partner or whatever it is that I do that, that keeps me all excited in life. So in some way, this, this notion of conscious death comes down to this moment is preparation for dying. And in this moment, we can be lost in our thoughts. We can believe our thoughts is real. We can be attached to excitement. We can take the first step of just becoming aware of all that, having a clear awareness, resting in mindfulness. And certainly, if mindfulness deepens, 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 eventually one can become enlightened. There's no doubt about that. But I think in this post-pandemic or almost post-pandemic time that we're living in, that it, it is possible to look more deeply to not just be mindful of shape and form and sound and perception, but to begin to get directly in touch with the nature of things. Can my heart be open enough that I can begin to directly experience God wherever I look? I was reading some quotes lying in bed last night about, I have a book called stories of the Mahasiddhas or something like that, of these drawings and, and uh, stories about these great Tibetan masters of long, long ago. They talk about, yes, there is this reality, but there's another reality where these deities are actually dancing around, that life is really imbued with this, this sacred reality that we very rarely ever see because we're so fixated on the uh, grosser form. Now, maybe not everybody in this room believes in deities dancing around, and it, it doesn't have to be deities that you can paint pictures of. But I would guess that pretty much everybody here has had experiences at one time or another where you saw beyond the obvious, where you felt beyond the obvious, where something was revealed whether that was through deep meditation or psychedelics or it just had happened to happen when you were out in nature or listening to music, but that something was revealed that is much larger than what the rational mind gets attached to and thinks. Maharaji had so many quotes saying things like, it's so much better to trust God than to try to figure it out or things like, Everybody is the face of God. That's a really difficult one to, to really begin to not just not judge people, but to see that everybody we meet, everything we meet, is totally imbued with as much pure consciousness as Maharaji was, or as Buddha was, or as Christ was. Everybody. Ramakrishna said, our duty is to fall down and adore where others only bow. Okay. Our duty is to fall down and adore where others only bow. Many contemplative traditions say very clearly that the minutes following physical death are the most auspicious time in an extended lifetime in which to see your true nature, in which to be 
to realize that you are enlightened already. It is so compelling to identify with our bodies and not having a body and suddenly not having a body is such a great benefit to seeing who we truly are. I mean, right now, it is so difficult not to think that I'm in Fairfax and you guys are spread all around, mostly North America, with maybe a couple people here from Europe right now. Okay. And yet, even though that level is true, we're so fixated with that level on what it is that's going to die and what it is that doesn't want to die that we forget, we miss that deeper quality of consciousness that is always here. To me, this brings up questions like, what is happiness? What is fear? How can I go beyond separation into connection? And the question is, can we die before we die? St. Paul in the Bible says, die before you die. Is it possible that you trust your heart so much that you can die into this wholeness? In Tibetan Buddhism, they say very clearly that Yes, you can go directly into non-duality. You can go directly into wholeness. But it is so much easier to go through the heart. The first place to go into the heart is love, is devotion. Can you have devotion for the deity, for the guru, or for, for just the dharma, or just consciousness? And once you can begin to open the heart, then the next and harder practice is compassion. To keep the heart open even though people around us are suffering and dying, and we're suffering and dying too. Can we keep our heart open when we, we see that so many people are lost in suffering? So what I'm working around here is that there is this path to healing. And I think it's easy to think, I think it's easy to think, it's easy to think that we start at the beginning, and it's a long, long, difficult path that we have shame and we have guilt. You know who I'm talking about. We have fear. We have all these things. And that I've, I've, I've been in therapy. I've been in body work. I've been meditating for years, if not decades. And still, I'm neurotic. Still, it's only seldom that I really feel my heart open enough that I feel joy in, in, in the context of what it is that's going on here. Several teachers have said, our duty in life is to experience the suffering of the world directly and experience it with joy. And that's really a tall order. But what I'm saying is that if we really know we're going to die, if we are motivated, then it's possible to look at these beginning stages, be in them, and at the same time, just use that as a springboard into uh, opening your heart so deeply that the tantric reality, that it is divine, that everybody is divine, no matter how weird they happen to be, how weird they're presenting in the moment, how out of balance the world seems to be financially or environmentally or politically or economically or whatever it might happen to be, in spite of all that, there is this reality that is just radiant, that is this book I was reading about the Maha Siddhas in Tibet, uh, the introduction, the guy was saying, can you see life as an audio 
visual spectacular instead of just seeing pictures and sounds, that we, we really see the uh, remarkable nature of things. And I don't think that's very far away. I don't think it's something that we have to do tons of practice, that it really takes just getting fed up with the way things are and saying, I'm going to drill into that place in my heart until that is revealed. I want to die well. I want to live well. I want to be connected to that which is. How alive are you willing to be? And the trick is fully experiencing even what you don't like, because we get so busy trying to grasp what we do like and get rid of what we don't like instead of fully devouring everything as it's coming. Even this moment, especially this moment and this one. So to the extent we can rest in this, then dying will just be another moment. Dying will be another moment of dying into love. And yes, there's a sadness that we'll be losing the people we care about, we'll be losing all of our stuff, we'll be losing our body, we'll be losing our mind, but we won't be losing this sense of pure consciousness, of profound awakeness. There are practices, there are practices we've talked about, certainly devotion going to passion, going to <laughs> devotion, going to compassion, going to tantra, going to non-duality. We can explore Dzogchen or Advaita Vedanta as a way of understanding this non-duality, for sure. There are libraries of books. I've got shelves of them in my house, upstairs and downstairs, of books about non-duality and how that's true. And I, I believe most of these books completely. But yet I get so entranced with reality, with, with, with the light show. I remember I was with my son a few weeks ago. We were down in Los Angeles looking at colleges. And we were going into some big uh, shopping mall uh, right next to University of Southern California. And it said, entrance. And I said, Declan, have you ever noticed that entrance means is the same word as entrance? And he said, I never thought about that. So we're, we're, we're entranced with things. We're, we're in this trance. But yet, that's the entrance into reality. Can we, can we begin to dissolve the trance that we're in through love, through clear awareness? The Tibetans are very big on going beyond hope and fear. And I think everybody is really on the program of, hey, it's great to go beyond fear. But going beyond hope is a harder one for many, many people. As soon as we hope that things are going to get better, it takes us out of the moment. As soon as we hope that you're going to be different to me, then in that moment, I'm not lost in love. Hope takes us out of loving this moment just irrationally completely. Hope is rational. Hope is, hope is based on hoping ch that something's going to change in a, a direction you'd like. They even say that hopelessness precedes fearlessness, that we, let go, we have to let go of hope before we can find that fearless, direct, naked meeting with reality moment to moment to moment. So right now, you're hearing my words, I'm hearing my words, you're taking them in, 
maybe you're liking them. Maybe you're trying to collect them. Maybe you say, oh, he said that 18 times before. Why does he keep saying the same thing? Who knows what you're saying? But is it possible to, to go beyond all reactivity to just together? And the fact that we're doing this together adds a great energy, a great benefit to the possibility of letting go of the safety of I'm knowing what's going on here and plunging beyond that, plunging beyond separation. When we were with Maharaji, again and again, he would discourage meditation. He would keep pulling people's beards or throwing fruit at them or doing things to distract them and just showing that all you need to do is hang out here in love. It, it's not about getting somewhere else. It's not about figuring something out or collecting great ideas. But right now, that possibility is here. And as we're doing it together, I think it, it reveals and emphasizes that possibility. Do we just cultivate an equanimous mindfulness that perceives the world with clarity? Or do we appreciate the magnificent illusion for what it is in all its spectacular wonder, the play of the gods? is my question to you. Okay, so why don't I slow down for a moment here and ask for remarks, comments, questions. Hey, Ramdev. Yeah. So um, I left a message uh, the other day so in the, one of the study groups studying the Bhagavad Gita, and we're studying the verse about what you focus on at the moment of death determines your your state, where where you go, and to, and Krishna tells Arjuna, you know, uh, keep your mind on me at the time of death, and you will you know come to, to me. So, um, just wondering if you wanted to comment on on any of that states of mind at time of death. Yeah, it's kind of hard to argue with Krishna, but I'd like to do it. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and, you know, I think that puts a really big burden on people to think maybe you've meditated for a whole lifetime, and then at the moment of death you're in an automobile accident or, or the doctors put a lot of morphine in your bloodstream and you're not focusing and everything goes down the drain because you're confused right at the end. And somebody asked Ramdas that exact question, and he said, well, in my opinion, the review you get for the play of life that you've been acting in is not dependent on the, the closing line, but on how you acted in the whole play itself. And here's another story. So the, supposedly the Buddha had the ability to open people's third eyes as a teaching device, and he was, he was teaching a bunch of monks about uh, karma and reincarnation. And this, this question came up about what happens right at the end of life. And he said, let me show you something. And he opened everybody's third eyes and they could see a battlefield on which there was a, a battle going on, obviously. Uh, on the battlefield was a very angry, wrathful warrior who had killed many people. As he was in the battle, a beautiful golden deer went running in front of him, right through his field of vision. The deer was so beautiful that his heart opened up. And at that moment, an arrow came and killed him. But because he had 
died with his heart open, he went up to a heaven realm. And the monks got all upset and they said, this is a bad guy. He's killed so many people. And just because a deer happened to go running by after he's been a really a bad guy, he gets to go to heaven. What's that all about? And the Buddha said, just be patient, O monks. The rest of his karma will also bear fruit. And he was only able to stay in the heaven realm for a minute or two. And then the rest of his bad karma bore fruit and he went down to a hell realm. So I don't, I'm not saying that the Buddha, I guess I'm saying I kind of trust the Buddha. <laughs> that, that even though he had this experience right at the end of his life, yes, he got to go to heaven, but it, it, it didn't really last. Basically, to me, this heaven and hell notion is something that's happening moment to moment right now. I mean, right now, if you or I are resistant or grasping or anything other than resting in open-hearted spaciousness, we're in hell. And this heaven is only one breath away, one thought away. Rather than worrying about, okay, I, I at the end of life, I might... Uh, not be remembering. It's this moment and this moment and this moment we're cultivating a connectedness that's strong enough. So I've often thought, suppose I'm in an automobile, maybe I'm in even an automobile with my son and some crazy drunk person in a big pickup truck is going to go crashing into the car. I can see that in, in five seconds, my body's going to be totally mangled and maybe Declan also. What would I do in that moment? I'm, I'm not going to start doing Dzogchen meditation. What I'm going to do is just start saying my mantra. I hope that I have a strong enough practice that no matter how erratic or violent or boring the moment is, that there is this foundation of that has been created that God and God's name is permeating everything that's going on. In India, they say that God and God's name are the same thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So to me, mantra is a, a very powerful practice. Many teachers say that mantra is the most powerful practice in this dark age because it's so available, it's so robust. It's very frustrating to the rational mind to keep saying, one word or a very short phrase again and again and again. The mind wants to be excited, just like that quote I mentioned before. We mistake mental excitement for happiness, right? My mind loves to be understanding things. <laughs> it loves to figure things out. It's very good at that. That's why I'm doing this. Like I've got all these all these structures of how the spiritual path unfolds and how different things connect with other things. Fascinating. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But eventually it comes down to going beyond the excitement and resting in the wholeness. Uh, Dale, um, uh, I'm thinking about the term conscious dying. And as a hospice counselor for many years, I've been present to many dyings. And I'm aware that rather than being aware of the world around one, as one dies, there's generally a, a retreat deep within uh, and an awareness not of 
what's around one, but only whatever is that conscious awareness within. Uh, and I wonder if you have a comment about that. Yeah, well, certainly if somebody's dying of a degenerative disease, which is often the case for people like you who work in hospice or people like me, I mean, if somebody dies suddenly of a heart attack or in an automobile accident or a brain aneurysm, that isn't the case, and you and I don't get called to the bedside because it happens in a, in a moment. So that we can't really count on this gradual death. We can't really count on the fact that uh, we're going to have the opportunity to gradually sink into, into deeper consciousness. To me, the point is, the moment immediately, the moments immediately following physical death, as the consciousness is leaving the body, that's the time when the great awakening can happen, right? Certainly, some people have uh, karmically a better opportunity as they're approaching death to do this gradually and calm down. I was talking to somebody this last week who's both of her parents are slipping into deep dementia and how difficult that is for her. And yet I pointed out that even though it might be expensive and frustrating and exhausting and all kinds of things, from the standpoint of consciousness, her parents are learning about being quiet and passive and receiving and open and things that maybe they weren't completely good at when they were running around having active lives. But my point here, the main point, is that right after we die, when consciousness lets go of the body or the body lets go of consciousness, then there's pure consciousness. The Tibetans say that at that point, there's a light that's as bright as a thousand suns. And to the extent that during your life, you have trusted dissolving into the light that is the true nature of reality, that light will feel like coming home. To the extent that during our lives, we were so attached to our minds and our bodies that we only have glimpses of that light and keep pulling back from it because it's, it's ego death, then the light is going to be too bright as we die. And we're going to have to take another incarnation to learn to deal with the brightness. It might not seem that this moment at 44 minutes after the hour of nine in California, whatever the hour is where you are, is the full expression of the light, but it is. And for those of people who have taken psychedelics, I would guess that you had the experience at times that that, that light was there. It was not a hallucination brought on by the drug. The drug revealed something that was there all along, that this pure consciousness is radiating in each moment so that we're preparing to rest in that moment to moment. And the, the better we are at doing that, then this moment after death will, can be a complete surrender into that. So considering that, what would you advise someone who is attending someone who has just died? How should they be dealing with their presence in their body at that point? Well, first of all, uh, Stephen Levine and I used to teach together. He, he developed something he, he, he called talking through the heart with the dying. So that even before somebody dies, but certainly after somebody dies, you can talk to them through the heart. You don't have to, have to say anything out loud. 
And what I usually do when I get word that somebody has died, whether I'm at their bedside or maybe I get a phone call that a client of mine has died over the night or a relative of mine has died in Chicago or who knows what it is. The first thing I do is I say to the person, you're dead now. Because sometimes people have such a firm belief that when you're dead, that's the end of it. There's no more you and they've died and consciousness remains. It's confusing. So I say, you're dead now. And then I kind of ask myself, do I feel that I have permission to do any guiding from this person? In all the decades I've been doing this, I think there's only been two times where I felt this person did not want my help. It was none of my business. I'm out of here. And the other 998 times, <laughs> whatever it is, I don't know, I felt permission to guide that person. And I say something like, this is a good time to trust the love and the wisdom and the, the, the kindness that you have cultivated in a lifetime. This light will appear. Trust this light. It's your true nature. You can merge into this light. Some of you have, have heard me tell this story about the first person I ever worked with who was actively dying. And this was back a long time ago in the late 1970s in Santa Cruz, California. Stephen and I had a Tuesday night meditation group. And a young man named Chris, who had lived in Toronto, he was a he was a radio engineer for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Moved to Santa Cruz. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He was uh, dying. He didn't know why he moved to Santa Cruz, but there he was. He came to our group. And one of the main things that was going on with Chris, because he was in his late 20s, or early 30s, uh, and he was getting weaker and weaker, is very frustrated that he was no longer a sexual being. He had very little energy. He couldn't move too much. And I don't know if he'd ever been sexual, but certainly at this particular point, he was not. And consequently, uh, he was very frustrated. So I just happened to be at his bedside the night before he died. I, I drew the lot of being there from midnight to 6 a.m. And I sat there. He'd been in a light coma for two days. He hadn't spoken. He barely moved. And I was sitting there. It was the middle of the night, and I heard him moving and stirring. And he was looking around the room, looking at the ceiling as if the heavenly host of angels were there. And uh, he, he, that God was coming. I said, Chris, Chris, what do you see? And he said, beautiful women wherever I look. And those were the last words that man ever spoke in his life. So that as he was actually dying, and right after he died, Stephen was saying to him, just, just trust this light. But Chris, if you see beautiful women in the after-death state, realize it's only a projection of your mind. It's something that you're holding on to, and that will be there as you're letting go of your body. Can you not take it as real? Can you see it as only your mind and trust the light and the love that is your true nature? And it felt like those words deeply penetrated into Chris and his departure from his body went very smoothly and wonderfully. It certainly is an individual thing. And the main thing you can do for somebody who's approaching death or has just died is can you yourself rest in the non-dual state? 
I mean, you can repeat things you read from a book or things that I say. But if you're if if you've got the mindset that I hope I'm doing the right thing, this is what Dale said, or this is what the Tibetan Book of the Dead said, or some something else said, I hope I'm doing this right, but I'm really trying to do a good job here, that won't have much effect. Can you go beyond I am doing this and rest in that wholeness? And then pretty much no no matter what you say will be the message to that person that it's it's safe and right to let go, to let go into not knowing, to let go into spaciousness, to let go into the nature of consciousness. So like right now, am I saying this stuff from my mind or am I resting in a place where God's acting through me and this stuff's coming through? I was just thinking about my Living Dying Project client so I was just thinking about how we had this connection, nonverbal connection, on a very deep heart level. And on the surface, it was, she just, all she wanted to do was leave her body. Right. She had no interest in practice. Um, when I went there, she would ask me to um, move the TV slightly around or tape some cords up that were bothering her or fluff her pillow in a certain way. It was all about uh, these slight adjustments to the material world. But underneath, I felt this deep current that was not really possible to put into words because she was so, for whatever reason, she just could not um, acknowledge spiritual practice or heart. I mean, she definitely acknowledged our connection. And there was like a, a very bright light for me in that room with her. That was completely unspoken, nonverbal. How old was she? Late twenties, early thirties? Yeah, late twenties, yeah. So Kamala was somebody who had a very active life. And just very suddenly she had some very rare occurrence where she became totally paralyzed, right? About lower body, upper body she was but lower body totally paralyzed, could not move her legs or hips and was in a nursing home, had to be taken care of in a nursing home. So she was in this nursing home with people that were three times her age. And people were, uh, so she she didn't have any relationship with anybody there. She was very frustrated. She, she wanted to get out of her body. Uh, a couple times she tried to stop eating as a way of dying and couldn't pull it off. But uh, eventually she was able to get out. And it was interesting to me that the facility allowed her to stop eating. I would think that being a licensed facility, they don't like people starving to death on their watch, that they could get in all kinds of trouble with the state. But apparently, that's not the case. Right. So that I, I think what John is pointing out is really a very interesting and important point, that even though somebody has this whole personality thing going on, I don't like this, this is a bummer, oh, woe is me, at the same time, there can be something really deep underneath that going on that you're just kind of watching the personality dance play out. And the, the personality has to do that. But there's also this connection happening. And certainly there are a lot of times when the personality is playing out and that connection is not happening, that somebody is completely buying into the outer story. And it might be that it was 
you who was there. But her parents really loved her a lot, too, of course. When my mother was passing away um, five years ago, I got to be with her for the last uh, 10 days of her life by her bedside. And I remember um, as she slipped into unconsciousness, I was so afraid to leave her bedside because I didn't want her to to pass on without anybody there. Yeah. And, um, and it seemed like I just wanted to be constantly alert to be there for her. And then it seemed like for the, for that little two minutes, I was just stepped out of the room. That's when she died. And, um, and I remember when in, in the hospital, it, um, the, the, um, the setup was that they had, they take the body down to the morgue and you have to take the elevator down from the hospital, walk through a parking lot and the, the morgue is in a separate building. So I got to do that with her, walked her down. And as they closed the door of the morgue, I couldn't go in. Um, a dragonfly came and just flew right in front of my face. And at the moment, I thought, I wanted to believe that it is my, it was my mother saying goodbye. And I received it. I accepted it. Right. Mm-hmm. So... I regret I didn't get to I, I didn't get to talk to her about what what she saw, but I think that was sort of a gift for me. Um, Thank you. That's it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people like to die alone. Dying is a very impersonal rather than a personal process. My father snuck out alone. And when I ran the dying center, there were people that it seemed like it was time for them to die and they didn't die and they didn't die. And I said, look, if you want to die alone, I'll leave the room for 20 minutes and then I'll come back and they would die in the 20 minutes I'd leave the room. And so I would suggest, without any judgment here, that your work would be to be aware of you were afraid that you weren't going to be there. That, that that fear was separating you from your mother in a certain way. That, that trusting the... Pro- I mean, you've got to go get a cup of tea. You've got to go to the bathroom. You've got to go get food once in a while. She knows you're there. She knows you love her. And she's going to decide when she wants to get out of there. Right? And to the extent that you can just keep surrendering into, okay, uh, I'm not in charge of this. She's not in charge of this. God's in charge of this or whoever's in charge of this then it gives the the patient much more permission to go beyond the personal. And that, I mean, probably there is no deeper bond than between a mother and a daughter in the whole world, right? It's understandable that you felt the way you did. At the same time, this training that we're talking about in our lives, our spiritual practice, is to trust in a deeper way the unfolding of life and death. And that doesn't mean you don't do everything to help people and to help people stay alive if they want to do that and have a a compassionate, skillful response. It's difficult to be with somebody you love and not have unconscious clinging to wanting them to stay alive, to not suffer, uh, 
And my line that I don't say to too many people when they're sick is, suffering is only suffering. Suffering is showing you what you need to let go of. Can we look at suffering not as some big problem, but as operating instructions for getting out of this body? It's the, it's, it's the user's manual, if you will. I've been around people in great physical pain who were not suffering at the end of their lives because they were not identified much with the body anymore. And in fact, often people dying in physical pain have an easier time dying than people that don't have pain because the pain is showing them that, that they're not just the body. Whereas other symptomology like nausea, where you don't want to throw up all over the bed all the time, make it harder to let go of the body. You keep being drawn back to the body not to make a mess or something. Some very great saints have said that there's a certain time for everybody to die. Here's a story about Maharaji where he told this uh, devotee of his KK Shah to jump out of a boat in the middle of the Ganges. Some places the Ganges River is, is so wide it's almost like a lake. It's like it's a half mile across or something. Mile across, maybe, I don't know. Really big there by Benares. And KK said, I can't jump out of the boat because I don't know how to swim, I'll die. And Maharaj says, jump out of the boat. And KK says, Maharaji, I'm afraid I'm going to die. And he said, jump out of the boat. And KK jumped out of the boat. And unbeknownst to him, the water is so dirty, muddy, that they were over a sandbar and the water only came up to his waist or his chest or something. And then Maharaji pointed down the river. There's a big, huge high bridge, so high that if you jumped off of it, you'd die. And he said, KK, if you jumped off of that bridge and it was not your time to die, you wouldn't die. There's a time for each person to die. And if we know that, can that help us relax? Can that let us know that there's a certain perfection, that, that, that karma is unfolding, and our job is just to be with it, to live so fully that we're devouring the karma moment to moment rather than creating a lot of new karma. My strategy, now that I'm in my late 70s, is trying not to create bad karma. <laughs> Try not to create any more mess than I've already created in my life. Try to be kind of nice to people, trying to help people. It's not very sophisticated, but that's what it's come to after all these years. 